My name is Anna. I'm part of the team at KXC and I'm preaching live again, which quite frankly makes me somewhat of a liability because I've had three, four months of being edited out when um, I say my random things. So John Carter is sitting behind the camera with his butt cheeks clenched um, because he is very nervous about what I'm going to say. And now his head is in his hands because I said the word butt. Um, sorry for referencing your buttocks, Jonathan. Okay, so we are continuing our series, our five-part series on reconciled, what it means to be reconciled to God, ourselves, each other, and the world. And this word reconciliation is taken from two Latin words, going straight into the Latin. I'm right in there. We're going to, it's, it's um, re, meaning back, and concilia, meaning together. So it essentially means being things that have been separated, being brought back together again. And the Greek word, kalotoso, I have no idea if that's how you say it, um, which is used in the book of Romans and um, Corinthians, was associated with relational rifts being healed, those who've been enemies now becoming friends. And that is our message, isn't it? That is the message of the gospel, that those who are God's enemies, he has now made it possible for them to be his friends again. Those who have sinned against him, he makes a way for us to come back to him, not just to be called his friends, but also his family. So we're looking at something that's fundamental to the the gospel in this series. And Paul says that it's not just that we have been reconciled to God, but actually he's gifted us. He, God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5 a lot, but let's just start there by reading what Paul says. As he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of drawing things back together. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, making them his friends again. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And in this series, we're looking at five questions that help us unpack what does it mean for us to be involved in this ministry of reconciliation? And then what do we need to practically lay aside to allow ourselves to engage in living lives which dismantle the hostile walls that separate us? So firstly, the question... And the question that we are looking at today is slightly different from the other questions we're looking at in this series. Because all the other questions are questions directed to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, who is the greatest? But this question is a question that Jesus directs towards us. It's taken in Matthew 16, Luke 9, and Mark 8. It's where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and he asks them, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who do you say he is? And the answer to this question is, yes, spoken through our lips, but it's also communicated through our lives. Because if you really, um, because who you think Jesus is will be communicated with your life. It's why James can say that faith without deeds is actually dead. Because, unless, um, because words are cheap, but unless your life demonstrates what you believe, then it's cheap words. And this feels like a timely question for us at the moment, because I wonder what the last few months have revealed about who you say Jesus is. We've said it before, but we'll say it again. The last few months have been a significant stripping back for us, and that includes in the area of faith. It is a historic thing that the church in this country is not allowed to gather together. That is a huge stripping back. Our weekly gathering on a Sunday is a central part of um, our apprenticeship to Jesus as we come together and receive teaching, as we pray for one another and for our world, and as we worship together. 
And we've done the best we can in the circumstances, but I can tell you what, preaching to a camera is nothing like preaching to a room full of people. I can tell you what, praying for people on the phone or over Zoom is nothing like turning to the person next to you and say, will you pray for me? Or going forward at the end of the service and having someone physically lay their hand upon you is such a comfort. All of that has been stripped away. Worship, um, where do you remember those times when we would sing together and there'd be that ginormous crescendo and everyone would put their hands up at the same time, almost in unison, unison. But hearing other people sing, being in the atmosphere of faith, all of that has been stripped away from us. That's a huge stripping back. And I wonder what has it communicated? What has it revealed about your faith and who you say Jesus is? When all that Sunday-based activity is gone, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How are you resourcing yourself and your faith? And what does it look like? And within church tradition, there's a season that writers refer to as the dark night of the soul. It's a time when it feels like the presence of Jesus has been stripped back, where um, praying feels like you're just um, speaking into an empty room and, and reading scripture feels like you're wading through mud. It's a common experience. I've experienced it and it felt so disorientating. It's a common experience, even if you go back to the Psalms, you, you hear the cry of the psalmist saying, God, why do you hide your face from me? And if you want to hear more about that, there's a great talk by John Mark Comer. Just Google John Mark Comer, Dark Night of the Soul, and it will pop up for you. But Emma Heddle said something to me, which is really stuck with me. She says, I think the church is going through a type of dark night. Where the things that we usually turn to for consolation have been taken away. The things that we usually lean on have been taken away from us. And while the dark night can be incredibly challenging, it can also have the opportunity of being incredibly fruitful if we let the Spirit do his work in us. Because the disorientation demands that you ask questions in the night, which in the light you don't need to ask. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. But it means that you are, you are asking different kind of questions in the dark night. In that place of disorientation, you're confronted with yourself. You come face to face with yourself. And in that place of confrontation, in that place of being stripped back, I want to ask you the question, who do you say Jesus is? When Jesus asked that question in Matthew, he, the Greek is actually that he says you. Who do you say I am? He does like a wordplay to emphasize the you. So you who sat in your lounge, you who sat in your room, you sat in your cell, who do you say that Jesus is? Not with your Sunday school answers, not with your answers when you're riding high, but you who've had your faith exposed and stripped back. Who do you say that Jesus is? And honestly, as I've been wrestling with this question, there's been times of actually real discomfort as I've realized there's been moments when I've treated Jesus like some kind of benign life coach who just wants to make me a better person. How boring is that? That isn't the Jesus of the Gospels. And what sits under this question of who do you say I am? The question is, is he your Lord? Judas, one of Jesus's closest friends, um, as, they're getting ready, as they're having the Last Supper in Matthew 26, he couldn't call Jesus Lord. All the other disciples refer to Jesus as Lord, Lord. But Judas cannot say Lord. He can only say Rabbi. And rabbi means teacher, so it's basically him saying, yes, I believe you, you're a teacher, but you're a teacher among many teachers, a teacher you can disagree with. To call Jesus Lord is to give him a unique place, a unique authority over your life, and Judas couldn't do it. Can you do it? And I want us to go back to that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 and look at the verses before this commissioning that Paul gives us, because central to this ministry of reconciliation is the lordship of Jesus. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things well done in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Our motives and intentions are plain to God. And the dark night is a moment where we become plain to ourselves. And can we honestly say we submit to Jesus as Lord? Is he merely a teacher, one among many in our lives, someone who we can happily disagree with and ignore at our own convenience? And when Paul is referring to that judgment seat of Christ, he's referring to the end time where Jesus is going to bring all things back together when his work of reconciliation is done, where all the broken bits, all the fragmented bits of this world are brought back to him. He is pointing to that moment. And if we look in the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture in Revelation 7 where John is having this vision of that worshipping community in the age to come. And this is the vision that he describes. After I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A huge crowd of every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's a beautiful picture of a reconciled community where the walls of division have been broken apart, where um, every race, nation, color, social economic background, political party gathered there, different but united. And what are they united around? They're united around the Lamb upon the throne, the Lord Jesus on the throne. That's what unites them. And John asks in Revelation, um, who are these people? Who is this crowd? And the response he gets is, these are they who have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It says white robes don't come from their own purity, but actually that they've been washed in the righteousness of Jesus. What reconciles them to God is Jesus, not their own works, but Jesus. Now, lots of people would look at that picture and they say, yeah, I want that type of community. Christian or not, they will say, yes, we want that gathered group of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language coming together. People long to see that. But what many people want is to take that picture, but they want to take Jesus out of the center. And the Christian story is that we will not be reconciled unless we confess that Jesus is Lord. We cannot get there without confessing that Jesus is Lord. That is what unites the people in Revelation 7. And you see that in the people around Jesus, that he had the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the synagogue leaders. He had people who would never normally find themselves gravitating to one another. They find themselves standing next to one another. And what is the thing that's drawn them there? It's Jesus. Who do you say I am? He is the force that unites us. So that is the question. How do we then get there? What do we need to lay aside in order to get there? And the answer is pride. To say Jesus is Lord means to say that I am not the Lord of my life and neither is anybody else. Pride carries this sense of superiority of being better than other people, but actually at the core of it is an obsession with self. It's an obsession with self-preservation, of adulation, of the desire for control and superiority, of success and approval. It is an obsession with self. It's all about me. And you can see that that is never going to lead to the community of Revelation 7. That is never going to lead to a united and reconciled community when pride is at work. 
and we could do, we could try and manage our pride, which is exactly what people, when, they, when they're, so, they're shooting for that Revelation 7 community, when they're shooting for it without Jesus, that's what they're saying. Well, we can do this, but we can just manage our pride. But do you know what? Our culture has been shooting for that vision for many years now, and we are more divided than ever before. Pride cannot be managed. It needs an overhaul. There's a far more effective way of dealing with pride, but the only snag is that it's very costly. It's the costly life that Jesus calls the narrow path because very few will actually be willing to take it. It's to take up your cross and say, I choose the way of Jesus. I choose the way of the cross. I choose your revolution, Jesus, and not my own. And we see this laying aside of pride in Paul. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. That's the route. That's the path to reconciliation. To lay aside pride and say, actually, that I am not the savior. I will bow to King Jesus and I will say that he is the Lord of my life. This life is not about me. My breath, my days are about him and giving that over our agenda to take on his. I submit to Jesus and make him the center of my existence. One of my favorite verses in the whole of scripture is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To give up our lives and say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what it looks like to lay aside pride. And it's all very well and good to say we submit to Jesus when everything is good and easy. When Jesus agrees with us and everybody else agrees with him too. But the picture of the crowd in Revelation 7, it's interesting to note what's described about them. These are they who have come out of great tribulation. Do you know what? I've been thinking in um, this period of how much we have to learn from the persecuted church. Like buildings and gatherings are just the beginning of what they have lost. They've lost homes, jobs, reputations, loved ones, and even their lives. But their faith is white hot. And the gospel is spreading in, um, in Iran and China much faster than it is spreading in the West. We have so much to learn for them. And one of the things we have to learn is their willingness to say, Jesus is Lord, I will take up my cross, whatever the cost. And do you know what? My guess is that there's going to be some people in our community that as we walk through this dark night, they're going to walk away from Jesus. For some, it won't be intentionally. It's going to be a slow drift without the Sunday gathering, with um, the spine time spent with Jesus decreases. The buzz of gathered worship isn't there anymore, and we can find it in much easier places. Others will be more decisive and say, Jesus, this is too hard for me. I'm giving up. I'm walking away. I disagree with you too much about the way you want to use my life. And you might be thinking, gosh, honey, you're very pessimistic. But I actually feel incredibly hopeful because I know what God can do with a remnant who are willing to say, not just with their lips, but with their lives, that Jesus is Lord. I know that the kingdom comes not through strength and power, but through weakness. And I believe for those who are willing to confront themselves in the dark night, they are going to be profoundly changed. And I'm going to be honest with you, when all the restrictions are lifted on gathered service, as we can sing to our heart's content, if we look like the same community, 
that went into lockdown, then I'm going to be very disappointed. And it's not because we were doing anything terrible before or I don't love every single person um, who was there before. But if we come back the same, if we've not let them, we've not let the Spirit do his work in us. If our celebrations are, I'm just so happy to be back with my friends and release my non-infectious spittle into the atmosphere, I will be totally gutted if that's all we're excited about. My prayer is that we will come back. When we come back without restrictions, we will be the church for others. Because we've wrestled with the question of who is Lord. We will come back with greater passion and affection for Jesus and his kingdom. Because that type of community will be the type of community that um, reflects the Revela Revelation 7 community. I'm talking about race. I'm talking about age groups. I'm talking about those who have lots in the bank and those who are in debt. I'm talking about those who have PhDs and those who um, left school without any GCSEs. Those who vote conservative and those who have never voted before. When we all respond to the gravitational pull of King Jesus and we find ourselves standing alongside people who are unlike us and yet calling them brother and sister. Where we find our commonality, not in our hobbies or our upbringing, but our commonality is found in that we all say that Jesus is Lord. That's what unites us. That's what reconciles us. That's what draws us together. So the question who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Lord? And are you willing to lay aside your pride to engage in this ministry of reconciliation?